0: Welcome to Matthew's World
1: of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different great varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. Hello and welcome. I have a special guest with me today, uh, Clemence Large Peugeot from a champagne producer. I'm very fortunate that we're here in Petaluma and I'm a neighbour with a member of a champagne producer, so <laughs> it's a, very nice because we can't travel right now, but we do have champagne nearby. So Clemence, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Why, why are you in California?
2: Uh, I'm here, so I moved here. I finished my master's degree in New York, actually, and I really liked living in New York. And then I wanted to explore California uh, wines because being in France, we are not really open to California wines, and I wanted to see, I don't know, the landscape, how wines were made, and so I applied to do an internship in California, in Sonoma County. So I ended up in Windsor, and that was in 2012. Mm-hmm. And then I worked harvest, um, twice there and then I kept getting jobs actually in this area and eventually met my husband who is from Petaluma Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
2: which is how I settled here.
1: And so um, where do you work? Where do you do the internships? Uh,
2: I worked for this tiny winery in Windsor called Fopoli Wines Mm -hmm. and then I ended up also working for a brewery that is now under a different ownership It's called Old Redwood Brewing Company and also for Christopher Creek Winery, Sheldon Wines and Two Shepherds.
1: Mm -hmm. Cool. It's fun how many French people are here in California. <laughs>
2: actually Well, until like the last two years, I hadn't come across as many French people. And then last year I met a lot of uh, French people, that, but they all actually work in dairy yeah. and a lot of uh, local creameries from
1: here. Right. That's interesting. Uh, Petaluma, if you don't know, is very much a, a dairy yeah. um, town and, and chickens and eggs as well. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of French people here who do travel to California to learn about different attitudes to wine from from France it's very it wine is very international yeah
2: yeah and also California has this like I don't know that's like the California dream from Europeans it's the sun and San Francisco and the beach and so
1: yeah it's 10 a.m here in California in January and it's <laughs> yeah, perfect it's sunshine and <laughs> yeah. um, so tell me about the family and the, the so you produce.
2: my family so the name of the winery is Le large Peugeot which so it's always been the large so Pierre-Henri Lelarge in 1799 moved to Vrigny and married Madeleine Javigny, who owned her family owned vineyards and so when they got married then he became uh, Lelarge and so he acquired vineyard and was growing grapes with her and they were selling the grapes so my family was only growing grapes until the 1930s when my great-grandpa started bottling and so but we've always been in the same village so my great-grandpa was the Fifth generation, and in, he went to World War One. When he came back, he got really lucky and actually had one hectare that was still planted. I mean, not um, damaged by the war, because during World War One there was a lot of battle in the Montagne de Reims, and so all the forests, the vineyards, the houses, the wineries, everything was bombed, and. Uh, and so my great grandpa, when he came back from the war, was lucky and had one hectare that he was still able to uh, farm and harvest and sell the grapes. And then he saved some money. And then in 1920, he invested into a press machine and was kind of pressing mm-hmm. for other people. And then in 1930, he decided to bottle his own wine, So
1: his own champagne. There's two things in that story which are interesting. One is war.
0: Yeah. <laughs> which is a very
1: important theme in Champagne, not just the First World War, but wars going back centuries. But also um, deciding to bottle in the 1930s and that, when I read about the history of quite a few producers, that's when a lot, a number of growers changed to become producers. Yeah,
2: yeah. And why
1: was that in the 1930s? I think there
2: was a wish wish of like becoming, wanting to be more independent. Mm -hmm. having more maybe more freedom and in try in trying on your own uh but 1930s was still pretty early a lot of them happened a lot of them started becoming grow producer after the world war ii mm-hmm. so my great grandpa was working and bottling with his wife and then he had to go to world war ii as well and so she stayed uh, at the winery and then was uh, in charge of the winery and then when he came back they both started working I mean they worked together again but my great-grandpa was pretty damaged from going to two wars and he went through a lot so that was pretty traumatic and also in the meantime he lost um, his best friend who was part of the resistance and so he ended up coming home and his best friend um, was sent to a concentration camp and didn't make it back so he ended up farming his two hectares which is two hectares that my family is still now farming so they're we're leasing it from the same family. Uh, so total now we have so we farm eight hectares but we own six a little over eight hectares.
1: Wow that's quite a story yeah, it? yeah, <laughs> it's a lot it's, of history there. It is yeah. And yeah. also another theme there that I've heard from other producers is it's the woman.
2: Yeah having so, to be in charge, yeah. yes. My my great grandma she had no choice. The first war she had to go, they went into the Aube actually to hide because there was no Um There is not as many, there was not as many battles in this area as in the Northern Champagne. And so she was, she actually, they left everything. And, but then the second war, she was in charge of everything. And my grandma also had a big presence in the winery and was, I mean, doing half of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They had no choice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um I think one of the key themes of Champagne's history is all the wars that have been fought around yeah. Champagne, which yeah. a really important trade area. And then of course one of the key themes of these wars is that the women became much more important and integral uh, to different businesses yeah. and, and working. Which. It's a positive outcome yeah. of all. we have yeah. to think of the positives. That's,
2: that's very true, yeah.
1: <laughs> and so how has the, the winery developed um, since then?
2: So since then, so then in the 1950s, my... So the at that time, the name of the winery was Le Large Raymond, which was my great-grandfather's first, I mean, last name and first name. And then it became Le Large Marcel, which was my grandfather's first name. Even though women were doing half of the work, it was still <laughs> of
0: course, the yeah. name <laughs> of the men on
2: the label. And then my dad, who wins winemaking school in Beaune uh, f- met my mother in Beaune where she's from uh, not from wine at all but they went back to Champagne together and took over in 1983 and then they changed the name to Large Peugeot and Peugeot is my mother's last name mm-hmm. and it's a very sweet gesture from my dad because my mom didn't bring any vineyards often when you see the right. wife's last name it's because she brought vineyards.
1: <laughs> so finally the, the woman getting the recognition is exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though she wasn't from a wine background.
2: Yeah, uh, not at all. Her, uh, she was going to nursing school. Her dad was a baker and then her mom was working in a daycare.
1: I guess your dad went to wine school. I assume he was the first to go to wine school. But
2: yeah, you, yeah. That your
1: grandparents uh, and your great grandparents no, would have just learned on the... Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, so he went to, it's called Viticulture Onologie. So it's to study wine growing and wine making. And my dad actually was hoping to get his master into an ol- in analogy, but my grandfather was older when they had him. And so, but then by the time he was at the end of his um, BTS, which would be like a bachelor, mm-hmm. my grandpa asked him to come home and to take over the winery. Cause he was, he wanted to retire.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so my dad was unable to get his master in analogy. So he really wanted to, I think because his family Never had never done school, mm-hmm. like Dammer school. I think he wanted to like prove himself that he could get like a higher degree.
1: Yeah. And so that's kind of the generational change, gap. Yeah, yeah the yes. change, yeah. And so um how did your father and your mother change winemaking?
2: So they first started by changing a lot of the wine growing. At that time so my parents were only bottling about 10,000 to 20,000 bottles. Like my my grandfather also was only bottling 5,000 to 10,000 bottles and they were mostly selling to people coming at the winery or like I don't know they had we call that depot and so you go you have a friend for example in Normandy and he'll hold like a stock of the wine and then he sells to people mm-hmm. in that area kind of like a a garage wine shop. Mm-hmm. Um and So yeah, so they did mostly changes into the vineyard work because my grandfather was part of that generation that used a lot of chemical in the Mm -hmm. vineyard because they were told that it was going to make their life easier and Champagne is a very difficult region in terms of wine growing. So he used a lot of fungicides, unfortunately, and herbicides and also a little bit of pesticides, but mostly fungicides. And then, so my parents really transitioned by uh, not using herbicides anymore. Uh, starting growing grass between the vines now they do a lot of cover crops and then they reduce the amount of fungicides they were using Mm
0: -hmm.
2: throughout the years to a point where they became organic Uh, so they became certified organic well they started the certification in 2010 we became certified in 2014 and then now they're uh, Demeter certified which actually I was looking because there is an article that just came out this week on la revue des de France about biodynamic Farming in uh, in France and in uh, Champagne, what was it? it was two hundred and sixty, two hundred and sixty, or two hundred and sixty-five hectares that are certified biodynamic in Champagne out of thirty-four thousand hectares.
1: Right. So, so not that many.
2: No. It's...
1: And I imagine farming organically and biodynamically in Champagne is quite difficult. It requires a lot of effort.
2: Yeah, because the main challenge is mildew, and so you you have a lot of cover crops, so you have to like work between the competitions between the vine and the cover crop and then mildew is like the biggest challenge Mm -hmm. um yeah it's difficult but what my dad mostly said is that the vines are becoming more and more resistant by themselves because organic is really like you're cleaning up you're bringing biodiversity back you're learning how to work with certain bugs and plants and then uh, biodynamic you're more reinforcing your soils and soil is like the main element because it um works on, I mean, it allows like the pass between the roots through the leaves. And so you're making your plants more and more resistant to disease. So we've actually noticed that now we almost have uh, no uh, odium. And then i mean depending on vintages but some vintages we've had like less mildew than other producers mm-hmm. that form conventional even though we don't use any fungicides
1: so that's the point isn't it of biodynamics or organic farming is long-term yeah, thinking yeah. Oh, that yeah the vine learns how to adapt to the environment exactly. rather than yeah. trying to control it yeah because then it doesn't learn how to resist disease yes.
2: yeah no. and you think also so the soil is the exchange where everything happens and if you have like if you drive through champagne most of the Less now because it's really trying to change, but it's still a very slow changing region. But when you drive around, like a lot of the vineyards are, the soils are totally compact. Like there is no aeration because they've used so many chemicals. So there is no exchange between the soil, the roots and the vine. So you wonder how like anything passes through the grapes and how you can make a complex wine from Mm -hmm. farming this way.
1: Yeah. And so thinking about champagne in general, we kind of think of champagne as one thing but actually it's a very diverse and quite large region. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different growers, a lot of different producers, a lot of different techniques, a lot of different yeah. standards of quality as well.
2: Yes. Um, yeah, there is. So it's really driven by big houses, uh, what we call a grandes maisons. So that would be like Vav Clicquot, Tétanger, but it's changing a lot because now consumers are I think there is. I mean, like in anything else, there is a wish to become closer to what you're buying, and so mm-hmm. it's like more small production, supporting like yeah smaller producers. So the grower, what we call the grower producer, like my parents. So in French, you would see it on the label as récoltant manipulant, which means that we're farming the grapes and making the wine, and so there is really people are more attractive to smaller producer to grower producer. And so they've, their uh, market shares are getting bigger into the sales of champagne, which Mm -hmm. is great because for a long time it was really driven by big houses. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So that again, trade is really important in Champagne, the trade structure and who's growing the grapes and who's buying the grapes and who's making the wine and those big houses are really important. Because everyone knows them and they're everywhere, but, yeah. but then these grower producers, he's like, oh, I know exactly where this fruit is coming from, where the vineyards yeah. are, where the village is, and that the uh, producer is complete charge. Yeah, because the the,
2: grower, uh, the big houses, they buy from like five hundred to a thousand different grower producers. I think there is, uh, it's fifteen. I think there's four thousand grower producers, and then there is fifteen thousand gores. So and you think there is around like 500 big houses so they buy from like all those different growers and some growers might farm organic some of them might, for, might farm like really poorly mm-hmm. and yeah so it's I mean for the longest time I, my family also was only selling grapes right. and then when we became organic it was really breaking my dad's heart to like see his juice like living in the tank to go be blended with other pe- other people's champagnes I mean other people's base juice so mm-hmm. And also, we had gotten to a point where we could get out of our contract because we were at the end. And a lot of the contracts, they, they're like 10, 20, 50 years mm-hmm. grape contracts. So you're locking them for a really long time. So.
1: And do you think the, the big houses are working more closely with the growers than they used to, where they have more control? Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
2: yeah. Because they have, um, uh, they, they have like, they call them chef de vignobles, so they're in charge of like meeting the goers and we work with tétanger and tétanger is a really good like family-owned big winery there they always came during harvest they loved the way my dad was working and were always really impressed by his grapes and the juice and so they always wanted to like be there when he was pressing to see how things were going and even now when we don't work with them they still come mm-hmm. so they they have a lot of them have good relationship It's not, they're not all the devil, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important to remember that those big producers do make very good wine. Well,
2: yeah, and they also promoted Champagne. The Mm -hmm. reason why everybody, like, recognized why Champagne is Champagne is because they promoted it. They have marketing services that provide it for everyone, so kind of ex- I mean it's very
1: important very important yeah and it's just a different trade structure and different yeah. ways of approaching um, yeah. making wine and I me- I imagine for many growers it's a lot easier to sell grapes than it is to make wine it's an yeah. easy way of making yeah. money
2: yeah it is because when you think if you're so if you're making champagne, you can't bottle until January after the harvest so there is already from harvest to January where you can bottle and then you have to wait a minimum of 12 months on the lease and then three years for vintages. So your wine, you're not going to be selling your wine for at least a year and a half before you, before harvest, yeah. I mean after harvest, so you're sitting on a lot of cash flow.
1: Yeah. Whereas if you just sell the grapes, that's it. Yeah, exactly. immediately after yeah. The you get like,
2: it's a, you get payment throughout the mm-hmm. year, but
1: okay.
2: it's easier.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And it's less, I mean, yeah, it's less investment because you have to have room for storing wine. What happened with my family is that the winery that my dad had built in the 19, it was 1990. Um, it was built for making 20,000 bottles. And then when we stopped selling all of our grapes, then we had the potential for making 60 to 70,000 bottles depending on harvest. And the winery didn't have enough room to mm-hmm. hold all those wines. Cause some of our wines, we held them for three years, five years, 10 years. So when you think about it, it's a lot of inventory yeah um so we had to do an extension of the winery
1: and um when i first got into wine i was like why is champagne so expensive it's not worth it you can get other wines for less money and then the more i learned about <laughs> champagne i was like oh this is why it's really expensive <laughs> I, don't
0: I don't know if it's because i'm from
2: champagne and like to me champagne is such a special wine so when people say that it just breaks my heart <laughs>
1: Because you think so you well,
2: can't compare it to anything. I mean, there no. is beautiful sparkling from mm-hmm. any other re- from other regions, but yeah.
1: Now I've got more and more into champagne, <laughs> and I completely understand why it's worth the price yeah. that, it, that it costs. There's so much work that goes in the vineyard. It's a difficult climate, yeah. and then all the work in the winery as well. Because yeah. This is a wine that it doesn't just make itself because no. it, it's sparkling. There has to be a lot of yes. a lot of effort. Yeah, there's a lot time. of
2: intervention. Yeah. And, yeah, and a lot of rules to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, champagnes uh, a very regulated market yes,
2: yeah so yeah for example every year we are told how we how much we can harvest and this year for example i mean this year 2020 uh, they reduced the yield uh, by i think by 20 percent because of covid and there is a lot of inventory in champagne so they try to regulate the region according to what's is what is inventory and also what has happened which is really bad for I mean really sad for small growers is that big houses are selling less and less but growers are selling more so growers are running out of inventory but big houses are not mm-hmm. but unfortunately they get to make the decisions on what you're allowed to harvest so like someone like my family last year they lost part of I mean they couldn't harvest all of what they wanted which is fine for now but in 2 years if they have a big frost or lots of mildew or something they can't fight against, then they'll be at a low harvest and then they won't have any reserve wine that they can use from the previous year. Because in Champagne, they allow us to use, um, they allow us to harvest a certain amount that we are allowed, allowed to um, use for our wines for the following years. Mm-hmm. So that was in case because there used to be a lot of frost and pe- har- uh, people would harvest only like 10, 20% of their production. So in good years, they will allow us to harvest more. And then that year we had a bad frost. We could use some juice from that e- previous
1: year. Yeah, so that's the eternal battle of Champagne, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, with the climate, but also the growers and producers are yes. never going to be exactly on the same page. No, no. <laughs> they have different interests. And so where is your family's winery uh, located?
2: So we're in Vrigny in northern part of the Champagne region. Uh, At the very beginning of the Montagne de Reims, it's actually called the Petite Montagne de Reims, because it's uh, low elevation, Um, and we are on the west side of Reims. Mm -hmm. So there is Reims and Epernay. Epernay is like 30 minutes south from where we are, and we are on the west side. uh, And then the Montagne de Reims basically surrounds uh, Reims, the city of Reims. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's really like just rolling hills. It's pretty flat. We call that a mountain, but it's not a mountain
1: at all. Yeah. Rolling Hills is a better uh, description. (laughs) I remember the first time I went to Rens, I was like 14 years old and we were just driving through with my family and we went to a a cafe and had some lunch and we had no idea how to pronounce the name of the city. Oh yeah.
2: That's actually, we've had some of our customers that tried one time it happened a couple of Americans that tried to come to visit us and they were at the train station in Paris and they say could we buy two tickets for a and the way they said it they had say like ren so the woman at the train station sent them to, <laughs> bought them train tickets to go to Rennes. So they ended up in Rennes instead of Reims. And Rennes. And
1: hi- Rennes is in Normandy. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so go opposite it's direction. It's like four hours, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the west
0: side.
1: Yeah. So my mum speaks French and she had to ask the waiter, how do you pronounce the name of the city that we're in at the moment? And it's like, oh, that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Know, there's so many.
2: I never know, I, now I say Reims, and so like, maybe people understand what I say. But some people say Reims, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's an important name to get correct. So you end up in the yes, right place. exactly.
2: <laughs> it's a lesson to learn today. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, so you're in the te- uh, village of Rigny in um, Petit Montagne de Rennes. Exactly. But the grape you're most associated with is Meunier. Yeah. Um, why Meunier?
2: So the reason for Meunier is because the vineyards in vigny are north. So the Montagne-Norance is mostly Pinot Noir, but the beginning of the Montagne-Norance, the vineyards are north north facing. And so back in the days, they had planted a lot of Pinot Meunier, because, which is actually now called Meunier, so that it has its own recognition. Mm-hmm. But uh, Meunier, uh, the buds a, couple, a few days later than Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. So when we had spring frost, then it would allow Uh, farmers to be able to harvest Meunier still. I mean, to still have Mm -hmm. um, buds from the Meunier.
1: And so did your family work with Meunier just because of that practicality? And then they thought, well, actually, we can make really good wine from this as well.
2: At first, yes. And my grandfather and my great-grandfather were mostly bottling Meunier. But then my parents, they ripped off some Meunier vines and replanted more Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because they were were struggling selling their grapes. Mm -hmm. And because for the longest time, Meunier, well still now, but a little less, there is a less price difference Mm -hmm. between how much they would pay, big houses would pay you for growing Meunier or growing Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. So Chardonnay, of course, you would get the better pricing depending on the terroir and then Pinot Noir and then Meunier would be like way lower Mm -hmm. pricing. So they had planted more Pinot Noir and Chardonnay but in the last few years my dad actually has been ripping off Pinot Noir and planting more Meunier because Meunier really thrives where we are so we're part of on the of the first layer of the Cretaceous which means that we mostly have calcareous clay and sandy soils versus like some other areas where they have the top soil being chalk Mm -hmm. so the chalk where we are is like way way deeper it's only like some of our older vines the roots are digging into ch- uh, into shark, chalk, chalk <laughs> but meunier really thrives on clay soils mm. so it, it grows really well we have no odium on money there is no risk of odium we have a little bit of uh, gray rot but we we've managed with cover crop and also some tea preparation that my dad does we've managed to like lower down the amount of rot that there is um, so it just go, grows really well. So now we're, it's really a focus of the winery making 100% Pinot Meunier. So now we make a 100% Pinot Meunier champagne that we're tasting today. We have a Meunier white, because we love that champagne. We bottle the steel white uh, to see how it would evolve. And we aged it in oak. Uh, we have a steel rosé of Meunier, a, a Cainier champagne of Meunier, and also a red Meunier. Mm-hmm. So now we're trying to focus more on Meunier. And then in 2018, we ripped off part of Pinot Noir and some Meunier vines, but we replanted from a Selection massal of one of my grandpa, great grandpa's vineyard that he had planted. Mm. The vines that were from 1936. And so we did a Selection massal and replanted some, which is very exciting.
1: Cool. So, yeah, Meunier. It's really exciting that your family is focusing on that grape variety. What about the rest of Champagne or other producers doing something similar?
2: So Meunier was to be, I think it was like 45% of Champagne was planted or 40, between 40 and 45% of Champagne was planted with Meunier. Now it's 32%. So it used to be like Mm -hmm. mostly planted, but it was the blended grape because the saying was that Meunier was an aging wine, and also Meunier is a, a big yield grape. So that's why it had a bad reputation, because the higher yield, the less quality you're making, eventually. But depending mm-hmm. on how you're farming and how you're pruning your vineyards, then you'll have different outcome. But so that's why Meunier had a bad reputation. And in the last like 10 to 15 years, more and more people are trying bottling it on its own and Aigli was one of the first one. He has one parcel in Vrigny and yeah and I've always loved when we were tasting the tanks, the Meunier were always my favorite during fermentation and after fermentation and so in 2010 we bottled 100% Meunier that now we make every year and it's pretty... Which would
1: be this wine I assume? <laughs> <laughs> which is named after you.
2: Yeah, exactly. Another <laughs> woman name on yeah.
1: the label. <laughs> Les
2: Meuniers de Clemence. Yeah, this is from four different parcels. So, we, need, we have calcareous clay and then a lot of sandy soil as well with defossilized shell- shells. So, this is a blend of um, both type of soil. The sandy soil give more spiciness and then the clay soil are a little more close, but more herbal and like vegetal notes um and so 2000 this is the 2012 vintage which was a really tricky year in champagne because we had a spring frost a lot of hail and also a crazy hot august month which then we ended up with like a lot of rot and mildew Uh, so i think my dad in 2012 ended up harvesting like less i mean only like 50 percent of his um harvest Mm i mean of his yield and uh the idea behind this wine was to always make one one vintage so people could see the evolution of Pinot Meunier according to vintages and uh yeah so this is the 11 to 2010 was like a really cold winter and the wine was like extremely minerally which we got really excited about it and then we we were like oh we'll, we'll keep making this wine because we had like a perception of money that was fruity but sometimes could be rounder mm-hmm. in the blend but in that one by itself it was like so crispy and minerally so and then in 11 it was a riper vintage higher ph so the wine was a little bit more round and then in 12 we're back to like more like a crispy and light uh, aspect to it
1: and um it doesn't actually say on the front label that it's vintage, but on, no. the, on the back it says 100% Meunier from the Harvest 2012. So yeah. you're not advertising very loudly yeah. that it's vintage.
2: Yes, without <laughs> declaring it. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. And it's good. Yeah, that... it
2: was because we want to make this wine every year, but we don't want to do vintages. Okay. I mean, we don't want to do blends, sorry. So, But if you do a vintage, in Champagne, the perception is that you only make vintage in the best years. Mm-hmm so if we start doing vintage on this one every year then it loses the sense of vintage so mm-hmm. but we really want to do only single harvest
1: so yeah it's vintage but it's not vintage yes
2: yeah there is a lot of rules on what you can say on a label and actually we just got in trouble uh in march right before the virus started uh about some label mentions that were wrong and so you have to be very careful on mm-hmm. the way you word things
1: <laughs> regulations are good but they can be annoying yes <laughs> yeah But it's good on the back of the label, it does say bottled in April 2013, disgorged in September 2018, so you got the information of when it's bottled, when it's disgorged, and then even the level of dosage, three grams per liter. So it's good that the information is there, that it's not always the case.
2: Yes, no, that's true. A lot of champagne that you buy, you have no idea what vintage it is, how long it was aged, Uh, you'll know that it's extra brut or brut, but that's Mm -hmm. that's it.
1: Yeah, I think more information is, is good. And this is the first wine of your family that I remember trying. Oh, nice! And I was just very excited because it is one hundred percent Meunier, and it's very interesting to try a champagne that is one hundred percent Meunier because it is unusual. Though I've tried more examples since then, I think it's becoming more common. Yeah, as you've mentioned, and I just loved it straight away. I just like I like the fruitiness of it, but as you say, it's still got that got that lean acidity to yeah. it. So it wasn't as fruity as I was expecting. Yeah. You, you think the the length of aging just kind of allows the wine to kind of balance I out. I think
2: it's primarily the type of soil, soil mm-hmm. that makes it this way. Because So Meunier, typically it's like very fruity. That was bringing like fruitiness to the blend. But in some area, like in the Valley de la Man, the Meunier that they have, they can be a little more like fruity and rounder. When ours, I feel like they're, yeah, they have complexity. They are fruity, mo- mo- um, mostly like yellow fruit, like the little mir- Mirabelle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the little yellow plum, but they are, st- its yeah, like you're saying, it's staying lean and light. It's like dancing on your tongue. There is mm-hmm. like no roundness to the s- texture.
1: And of course, Champagne is a cool climate. So when we talk about the fruitiness of Meunier, it's very relative. Yes, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we, we, should, we should really expect that high acidity uh, regardless of the grape variety. But if you've got the right variety in the right soil in that climate, then you would expect a wine like this, I think. Yes. So it's very typical of Champagne.
2: That and also one thing we've noticed is the farming way has changed the wines a lot. So like, I think they're all very different, but you always find the same trace of like, they're silky, but they have this salinity on the finish, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, salinity makes you want to go back to your glass. So that's a positive.
1: Yes. Yeah, I've never thought about it in that way. But yes, that saltiness just makes you want to... It's like
2: oysters, you're always like, how many more can I eat?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It kind of dries out your mouth, so you need to drink something else, yeah, something more. And um, you work with, or your family makes um, still wine as well, as you mentioned. Yes. Is that a growing trend in champagne, or is it a small
0: thing?
2: Yeah, so it's a growing Mm -hmm. trend, but in a small, it's still like very small. Cause when you make, so they're called Coteau Champenois. So in Champagne, you can make Coteau Champenois or it's AOC AOC Coteau Champenois or AOC Champagne. That's the only two wines you mm-hmm. can make. Or oh, and Ratafia. Um,
1: which I love by the way.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we actually, last year we started remaking Ratafia Ooh, again. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's exciting news. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we, we stopped. My grandpa used to make a lot and then my dad stopped because we were not selling it and not really drinking it either. So.
1: You weren't drinking it?
2: <laughs> no, not as much. I mean, every once in a while for like aperitif, but that's it. A...
1: And so if you don't know, ratafia is basically fortified grape juice. Yes,
2: yeah.
1: exactly. And uh, it's just very delicious. It's just grape juice with some alcohol to it. Yes, it's very sweet and delicious. <laughs> <Yeah. so.
2: laughs> um, but... Uh, I lost the train <laughs> <Yeah>, So <laughs> well, we still wine, about Still wine from the UK. Oh yeah, the so the, with the AOC Coteau Champenois, the yield that you're allowed to harvest when you declare that you're making AOC Coteau Champenois is lower than if you're making champagne. So that's why it's not as, it's not something that you're seeing as much because producers will lose some of their yield if mm-hmm. they make a lot of Coteau Champenois. Now we make six different Coteau Champenois. Mm-hmm um So, and we, it's a, it represents a lot. Like, total production now is like almost 7,000 bottles of Coteau Champenois. But they're exciting, they're fun, and then we also get to like taste them faster than Champagne. So, I think that's something that's really attracted my dad being able to like taste it as soon, I mean, uh-huh. faster than Champagne, because mm-hmm. Champagne changes so, so many times throughout the aging process. um So, yeah, we, and then the, Uh, winemaking style is different so we've changed a lot throughout from like 2010 like for even this one it's all in stainless steel now we're getting away from stainless steel we had we invested in food so we have three beautiful food we have amphoras uh, and then a lot of barrels so the coteau champenois my point was that the coteau champenois because they are younger vintages they are aging um, in barrels
1: yeah, and not in bottle as yeah, well, so probably yeah. easier to taste. Yes, otherwise. exactly. Yeah, so still champagne, I think, is still very much a niche thing, but it's interesting that your family is expanding. Um, but it, I think the high acidity of the wines can be difficult for some consumers, maybe, because so, there's such a tart grip to them.
2: Yeah, depending on which producer you're tasting. No, from farming organic, we're, re- we're trying to really reach like a better balance of acid and ch- acidity and sugar. And so we harvest way later than we used to. So we have more sugar in our grapes. So they're actually, I mean, the grapes are riper and there is more phenolic ripeness. So they are more complex. So they actually don't have as much acidity as you would expect. Mm-hmm. The Blonde Meunier, for sure. But the We Make a money Red, that's really exciting. And like it's tonic, vibrant, but has lots of fruitiness to it.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think climate change is...
2: I think so, yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs>
1: that's,
2: that's helping. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I think cool. part of this conversation is that champagne is always changing and always evolving. We think of it as this historic style of wine, but actually champagne has always been adapting to circumstances.
2: Especially if you look at, I think, gore I mean, gora producers are more willing to change faster than being ha- big houses. Mm-hmm. So you see, like the gora producers, they've started farming more organic, more, and caring more about their lands. And then now there is more big houses that are actually transitioning to organic farming, mm-hmm. which is very—I mean—that's incredible because they're they have so many hectares and they're gonna force their growers to also farm organic. But so it's for something, example,
1: Louis Roederer, yeah, a yeah, big example. Of that. I
2: mean, they've put like i don't know over like 100 or something 150 hectares uh in biodynamic farming mm-hmm. in the last like six years i know Tétanger, they're transitioning to organic as well I mean, there's a lot of uh they have part of their vineyards that are certified organic so i think every now they, they've seen that it's a trend and so they also want to get on that movement mm-hmm. which is great because the better we farm it's all good for everyone
1: yeah and it's, it's amazing to think that 50 years ago, everything would have been very chemically yes. enhanced. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and now we're getting into a good place where people yeah. are very much hands-on and let's work with the land and with work with the fruit uh, in a much more natural way. Yes. A much more proper way, you might say. And I think goes uh, my final question, the question of terroir in Champagne, because in Burgundy that gets talked about all the time. Yeah. In Champagne, it does not. Mm-hmm. Are, do you think your family or in general, the idea of this is where the fruit comes from is much more important than it was before
0: yeah
2: it's yes I think so because again you have a bigger presence of champagne growers and champagne goers know their village they must have people like my family we only have we only work with three different villages and only small uh, and only a few parcels in the outside village but then So often the goers only work with a few villages and they know their terroir very well versus big houses that work with 500 different people. And it's like 40 different villages. So terroir is not as much important because it's blended all together. So now that's a subject that's coming more and more. And also from the way you're farming, like the idea is that you wanna showcase the terroir because you want more mineral extraction that's coming from your soil. So you are definitely more Caring about your land and your yeah, you want to show your the the expression of the terroir. So that's something that's way more. It's less about marketing, less about a story. It's a little bit more about how the wine is made, which is great because that was a question that was never really asked about champagne.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then yeah, the terroir.
1: And do you think that leads to a better understanding of a grape variety like Néan? Yes,
2: of course. Yeah, <clears throat> because there is definitely different expression. Of Munier of Chardonnay, the Chardonnay where we are, because it's we have a lot of sandy soil. They're a little richer than Chardonnay from near Épernay, where it's like all chalk and they're like really high acid and more citrusy. So yeah, it definitely changes the grape. I think the soil is everything in wine.
1: hmm well, that's really interesting because it kind of sh- kind of sums up why Meunier was used to be for high yields and because it budded a little yeah. bit later and ripened a little bit earlier. It's a practicality now it's like well Meunier works on this soil and yeah. expresses the wine it's it's expressed in the wine in this way yes so we can work with Meunier actually for quality yeah. and think about it as a great variety that
0: yeah. is
1: worth its own quality
2: and also people now make a coteau Champenois Meunier Red you're starting to see more and more and they're pretty exciting wines and I think we're in the next few years if we're, we keep going in the direction we're going with climate I think we'll be seeing more and more Mm-hmm. Uh, red wine coming out of Champagne, which makes me part of I mean, it's exciting, but it also makes me kind of sad to be honest.
1: What about sparkling red wine?
2: It's not allowed.
1: Okay.
2: But uh, we actually talked about maybe next year trying, doing a try mm-hmm. of sparkling red wine and see how. But it wouldn't be allowed, so we it just. Do de France. Mm-hmm. So. No, no. no there is a... no Vin de France in oh, Champagne. Really? You're not allowed to do Vin de France. So it's only yeah, it's only Coteaux Champenois or Champagne.
1: Okay, those regulations again.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we, we we keep getting in trouble because of those
1: regulations,
2: <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> it's part of the game.
1: Well, <laughs> I'll have to travel to Champagne to taste the smart yes, red wine yeah. when it gets made. Oh, we
2: make a lot of fun stuff. We make Petillant Naturel. Uh-huh. Uh, we yeah, we have stuff that can't come out of the winery but <laughs> if you come visit you get to taste it <laughs>
1: well don't worry i will definitely visit the next time in champagne which will hopefully be sooner rather than later
2: yeah hopefully
1: and actually one last question we we talked about the big houses and how important they are commercially which is your favorite Ooh,
2: that's a good question <laughs> mm, i like boulanger
1: so this is why Clemence and I are friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Yeah.
2: Boulanger <laughs> I would say that like I don't in a restaurant on a wine list it, like I, I would never go for big houses to be honest. Because to me I'm more much more interested in like the the work of a small producer. But if I saw a wine list where it's all like big houses, Boulanger would be like my number one choice.
1: Yeah. Me too. I always want to go for the smaller producers in any any wine region. Yeah. You just want to see what's going on, what's going on in the ground. But sometimes you don't have that choice.
2: Yeah, that's and true. A lot often, especially yeah. on. I mean, you go to restaurants and all have amazing producers from other regions, but then the champagne section is all like big houses. Yeah. That's very common. Yeah, still.
1: And they are. They do dominate production. Yeah, and they're very very famous, so they're very important commercially. Yeah. People recognise them. That's kind of their raison d'être as yeah. well. Yeah. And yeah, if Bollinger's on the list, then I'm going to be Bill Car, quite happy. Salmon. Okay, that's my second choice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I think.
1: Well, it's funny. British. I um, a friend, another French friend, asked me who's my favorite big producer, and I said Bollinger. And she said, "You're so British."
0: <laughs> That's it. <What laughs> I
2: thought Paul, Paul Roger okay. was like,
1: the main.
2: <laughs> I I did a one show in London, and I was next to. the the representative for Paul Roger, and they couldn't have picked the the (laughs) best. It was like he was uh, the representative for England and Uh. I thought they couldn't have picked the best (laughs) man. Like it was perfect for representing Paul Roger in England.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Winston Churchill. But then uh, Bollinger has their 007 James Bond range.
2: And I've had some vintages of La Grande Dame from Verve Kiko Mm -hmm. that are very good. I personally don't like Dom Perignon and I don't get why people are so in love with it. I feel like there is many other wines that. Well,
1: this is where marketing yeah. comes in, yeah. and name recognition as yeah. well.
2: Yeah, uh, tetanger their higher end qv are really good as well. I recently tried uh, their brut, but to me, because now we only make extra brut or nature because we're not trying to cover up the wine at all with any Mm -hmm. addition of sugar. So like I thought their brute was way too high in sugar. And so I'm having a really hard time like drinking champagne that have higher Mm -hmm. amount of sugar now.
1: Interesting, because other people say they like the sugar because it balances the acidity. I think that's just a taste. I think it just covers up the wine and it just tastes like Mm -hmm. sugar. Sugar. (laughs) 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 Well, if we could go back to the 19th century and taste (laughs) (laughs) champagne. Well, yeah.
2: where was that uh 15 years ago they had found some bottles in the like near russia in the sea and the it was like bottles that were from i think the 1900 mm-hmm. and they had they still had like 100 grams per liter of sugar can you imagine yeah. how those white tasted like back in the day yeah this,
1: th- this one has three grams
2: yeah that's <laughs> which is
1: next to nothing completely different again an example of how champagne has changed over yeah. the years it's not always been the same and the reason i asked about the your favorite big house is that kind of those big houses kind of have different styles and so it kind of it's an easy way of summing up the kind of wines that you like and also that the big houses are important commercially because they represent champagne yeah and um, if they do a bad job then you don't go to the grower producer like your family because you're like oh champagne's not very good so they've got to be good because they represent the region
2: yeah very true
1: yeah, but lots of different styles of champagne out there, which is exciting. It's not just a uniform uh,
2: there is Yeah, there is a lot in yeah. that comes into champagne. I was thinking about your question about terroir, but also one thing with Goro producers is a lot of them do like single vintage as well. So which is more interesting to like try versus like And not getting away from, that's one thing my family got away from as well, is making like a house style. Mm -hmm. Like now we're trying to like showcase the terroir, the vintage, the grape versus just always making the same wine, which Mm -hmm. is kind of boring. But it is true that in a sense, like it's good for selling wine when people can remember how your champagne tastes like.
1: Yeah, so consistency is important, but also expressing... The vintage and the land is important yeah, as well. So getting that balance. I
2: mean, consistency is kind of boring. I'd rather, to, I mean, be excited. <laughs> well, you want to be consistently like, good. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: But not consistently the same. Yes. <laughs> well, cheers to that.
2: Cheers.
0: Thank you.